Good morning. Danny, uh, hopefully is the last time in a long while that he'll be going up to Newland, but he's preaching up there today. So, uh, Mike, when is Cooper going up there? March? We started the move yesterday, completing it this week, and then he will have, I think, two weeks off before he preaches. Okay. Very good. Very good. Junior, we're going to call you the Samaritan over there on the far side. Keep you dis- distant from the rest of the, co- the flock. <laughs> Do you? Yeah. Um, let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the gospel. Um, thank you for what Jesus Christ has done. Lord, even though many people try to twist the gospel and change it and and uh, make it into things that it's not. Uh, may the gospel be our what we exalt in, what we rejoice in, our hope every moment of every day is in the finished work of Christ and his work in us by his Holy Spirit. I pray, Father, that you would help us in the book of Numbers to know you better, to know ourselves better, uh, and to know what it means to live by faith uh, on our journeys in this life. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're in chapter 21. <clears throat> I am, I'm at break, like, trying to barrel ahead and get my notes done. I'm in chapter 32, I think, in my notes. So I think that's probably a good thing because the more I get ahead, the faster I want to go through so it doesn't just drag on. Um, but Already trying to think about what I'll be doing next after numbers. So <clears throat> let's read verses one through three and try to see what God's teaching us now. Somebody had that microphone. Katie did, but she's gone. Okay. Uh, Ryan, why don't you just read verses one through three for us? When the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in Najib, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Atharim, he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. And Israel vowed a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. And the Lord heeded the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites, and they devoted them and their cities to destruction. So they named the place was called Hormah. Okay, so what is the reason why these three short verses are included in the book of Numbers? Just, I know you're just jumping in right off the bat, but some of you, you guys are sharp. You may, you may actually see something in here that, that uh, tells us why this story is included. Take a stab at it, Howard. These like couple verses, they actually agreed with the plan. Yes, <laughs> and this. Later, I mean, they, they forgot about it. <laughs> this is further, in, I mean, the big scheme. This is further indictment of of Israel for not keeping its word. You know, it's part of the covenant. Very good. So. Uh, this is the first victory 
that Israel has over Canaanites. Right? There's a Canaanite. There's a king. Now, this guy is living in the Negev, which is down here in the south, not really up in the main part of the land. So you can't really take it as like they've entered the land yet. That's got time still to come. They're going to end up coming all the way around like this. But this is like a little foreshadow. It's like, you know, you come to know Jesus Christ, you're enslaved to sin, and you defeat some sin. You're like, victory! It gives you hope that maybe you can do the full thing, right? Keep moving forward. So this is a, is a positive uh, sign. We've only seen kind of negative wandering so far. Israel, the first generation, is going to stay in the wilderness. They're not even going to make it to the promised land. So we get our first victory, and that gives hope as you're reading it. There's, there's positive things that are happening, not just negative things. Um, the king of Arad is a Canaanite. Uh, and I think it's interesting that he's the one that aggressively comes against Israel. So a lot of times if you're you know, kind of afraid of fighting, you back somebody into a corner and you do end up fighting better than you thought. So this is what's happening here with Israel. They were, um, uh, you know, they didn't really initiate this fight and don't think that it's only right to fight defensive battles. I think it's more of they're a little bit timid, but they've been attacked and so they want to they fight back. So... Um, why do you think the king of Arad uh, attacks them? Yeah, they're just a threat, right? I mean, it's it's kind of um, it's it's a little bit foolish because they um, Israel's a huge people, right? But um, they he's like maybe if I do this, they'll they'll leave. I don't know. Um, he feels threatened in some way. Israel? Yeah, they're, I mean, there's 600,000 in the army. So that's a huge army that they have. So, I never thought of it that way. So, that's, that's. Yes, very good. Yeah, well, no, you, you can bring that up. That's great. So, did everybody hear that? Uh, that that they actually ask permission for this. Um, and they give a vow, right? They basically uh, commit themselves to the Lord. Uh, right, I mean, this is, you know, uh, there's a, a aspect of the unity. Uh, you know, God's able to cut people out of his people, right? He can... He can open up the earth and swallow them down. But in general, the people of God are one people. So if there's a people that gets caught out here, similar to Abraham, whenever uh, Lot gets taken, he goes and gets him, right? I mean, there's that, that kind of unity of the people, and we're going to see that unity is a big, a big part as we move forward. Um, uh, later on, when uh, the, the, the two and a half tribes that want to stay on the eastern part of the Jordan they have to, you, you can stay over here, you can have this portion, but you got to go in and fight with us, you know, that whole unity idea. So, so these are all good uh, beginning themes. Um, I think it's important that we understand harem. 
You guys, have you, you, those of you been around me before know harem, but if you haven't, what is, what is harem? Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a total, this is what we think of when people criticize the Bible and they say it's full of genocide. This is like wipe them all out, total destruction. So, um, that's it. Devoted to destruction. That's that's harem is the the Hebrew. Uh, devoted to harem. So, um, notice the Lord's response. A little bit strange. Verse 3. The Lord heeded them. It's almost like the Lord obeyed them. The Lord responds to them. As much as we look at God as being absolutely sovereign and control of all things, there's, there's always in Scripture this give and take relationship with God, and he is responding to them. And that's a, that's a back-and-forth relationship going on. Now, I didn't, uh, I didn't explain. I probably should. When haram occurs, it is always a foreshadow of the final destruction. Okay? It's always, whenever you see that, something completely devoted to destruction, you should think, oh, end times, final battle, destruction of all evil. That's what your brain should be thinking. Because it is God's judicial punishment of the wicked that goes on. Now, it, he's able to do that in, in time, like back in time, before the final day, because he's trying to give us a glimpse of what that would be. So there's plenty of situations where harem takes place. Um, Sodom and Gomorrah. God completely destroys Sodom and Gomorrah, does it himself. Noah's flood. You know, another possibility. Uh, when Joshua enters the promised land, another time. You know, so there's all these situations where this occurs, and this is one of the first ones of this generation where they're doing that. And it's, it's not by accident that it is carried out on Canaanites because God has already judicially pronounced that the fullness of their sins has come about, and he wants to destroy them. Okay. And I know that thinking about this is hard, or if you in the news, it's like, how can you believe in a God who does these things? And I was talking to, who was I talking to? I can't remember who I was talking to, but I, I basically said, as hard as this is, oh, I know, it was the, it was the elders and deacons on, on uh, I, I basically said, yes, it's hard to think about God's absolute wrath, but if you get rid of the final judgment, they're, they're, Christianity is meaningless. You might as well just throw everything else out if you get rid of the final judgment. Um, God must judge evil. It's just the way it is. It's why, we, it's why we cling to Jesus Christ. And if there's not going to be this final judgment, then um, what's the point? Christianity doesn't have any real meaning. So uh, to just, I don't want to belabor this too much, but we are not saying that all of the wars of religion that have gone on throughout history have been um, uh, ordained by God. So we're, we're definitely not saying that. Um, the, there was a period of time in Israel where God uses his people as his uh, instrument of, of judgment, 
but we don't even live in a theocracy today. We don't live in, you know, the, the, the churches doesn't bear the sword. I mean, all these kind of things. So, so I, I do think that religion has often said, oh, yeah, we're on a crusade, we're on a jihad, we're on this, when they're really maybe not, you know. So that's fair enough. But the, the, when I say that history, the religion has abused this, doesn't mean that we throw the baby out with the bathwater. There is an appropriate use of God's judgment on evil, and this is one of those. So any questions on that before I move on? Because I don't want to... took me a long time to th- work that through in my mind, and I'm doing it rather quickly here. But um. <clears throat> Okay, they actually named the place... Horma, which is actually kind of a somewhat of a um, a, um, a what do they call it when you take the word and it's a it's derived from cherem. So that instead of devoted to destruction, it just means destruction. Uh, that's what horma means. So also the Israelites follow through on their vow here, which is a good sign. So, this is, this is the point of a new beginning. By the way, uh, in my own life, I'm not going around thinking, oh, destroy all the evil people in the world. I'm praying for God to save evil people in the world, knowing that that destruction is coming, and that people need Christ, or they're going to be wrapped Everyone will be wrapped up in that. So that's the whole, the whole point. I also think that the New Testament applies this in the sense that the reason for destruction of the world is evil. Therefore, as Christians, we can never make friends of the remaining evil in our hearts. Now, in some sense, we have to live with the fact that we've got a sinful nature in us, and we're always, you know, we have, but you can't ever just say, ah, who cares? That's just a little bit of evil. Don't worry about that. You should always be thinking, no, God is going to destroy evil. Therefore, I want him to root it out of my life. And so even though I'm frustrated, I haven't gotten rid of all the evil in my heart, uh, you know, I am called to fight daily, avidly against evil. And, and, Issues like harem help me to say, no, this is really important. I can't just minimize the struggle against sin. I have to keep fighting against it. I have to repent against it when I, uh, when I do fall into sin. I have to turn from it. I have to humble my heart and cast myself on Christ. All those things are not just, they're not just things we just go through. They're, they're really real uh, issues that we have to do if we're going to be Christians. Okay, um, So a, a loose understanding of sanctification is not really compatible with a right understanding of the gospel, is what I'm saying. They, they, they go hand in hand. So, all right, four through nine. Let's have, uh, Erica, would you read for us, please? Thank you. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food, no water. We loathe this worthless food. 
Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many of the Israel of Israel died. Many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Okay. So they are, they've had this battle up here. They're on their way down this way, going around Edom. Uh, And why are they going around Edom? Not a route, not allowed to go through there. Edom won't let them. And why does God not bring about harem on the Edomites? They're kin, they're what? They have, there's some connection, right? So you don't want to just say from this like, um, oh yeah, I'm a relative to a Christian, therefore I'm okay, I'm not going to, no. It, but, but there's a sense of mercy that God is giving to them in this, and, he, and their sins have not reached their fullness, for, you know, however you want to think about that, and God's like, uh, we are not going to destroy Edom right now. Doesn't mean that down the road, Edom might not get destroyed, and they will. If you get to the prophets, you see, I think there's, um, there, I mean, there's plenty of places in Isaiah and other places that talk about the Edomites and their destruction. And by the way, the Edomites are constantly uh, criticizing Israel throughout their history. So there's, anyway, but, but they're not allowed to destroy Edom, which again tells us that Israel's not just allowed to just go kill anybody they want, wipe everybody out. That's not what they're allowed to do. There's very specific specific rules that God is is giving them. He's in control. Civil war, where um, you know families fought against families, and they were, you know, distant relatives. Pretty brutal, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In our own country, yes. Okay, so. They um, are heading around this way, and what do you know about coming way down here on this longer path, uh, what happens to them? What's their attitude? I love this, but it's, they don't just grumble and complain, they are impatient. Okay, okay, go ahead, Peter, and then Mary, go ahead. <laughs> but, but okay, so, but why do they get it right quickly in the other one? Because it's, it's a quick victory. Bam, it's nice. We win, good, we conquer, we go on. Now, go ahead, Mary, I'll let you talk first before I... Well, it, it looks like they're going back into the desert. They're not, they're going away from the land. <laughs> it doesn't, it looks like victory is getting further and further away. Instead of like conquering and going in and, you know, this is, we're going to do this quickly and win, it is long. It is slow. Now, think about, there's a lot of levels you can think about this, right? Think about how long God waits to bring Jesus into the world. 
right? Think about how long Jesus has tarried coming back. You know, think about how slow God is to destroy all the sin of your heart. You ever get impatient? Can't you just fix me quicker? Can't you just come back? Right, so I don't think we should look at, those guys were terrible. What is their problem? We are the same types of people. The scriptures are a mirror to show us our heart. We are the ones who are impatient. We are the ones who who want God to do his work quickly. And if he doesn't do it quickly, there's something wrong with God. Okay? I tried that Christianity stuff. It doesn't work. Right? We've waited for 40 years. Why don't we just head on in right now? Now, if you know anything about God's plan, remember the first plan was to go straight up into the land of Canaan. He comes around here, and and I I learned this as we studied the book of Deuteronomy in youth group years ago, but it was amazing to me. If you read the first few chapters of Deuteronomy, it's kind of a a re um, it's like a short brief history of this period. And when I look at this, God is is Little victory here, little act of obedience as they're avoiding people here. He's going to get up into these areas here, and he's going to attack two smaller kingdoms, uh, Sihon and Og, you know, those kingdoms, Bashan. Anyway, he's, all of this is like putting training wheels on the bike. The first time, oh, just go in, I'll conquer them for you. They fail miserably. This time, I'm going to teach you like a kid learning little by little how to follow me, how to trust me, how to obey me. And I'm going to get you into the promised land, but it's going to be a slower route. And I think that's really uh, important for us to see here. So impatience, yeah, it's, they're just the same old Israel, but, but we deal with this because we want our salvation to be quicker. We don't like it when it's slow. Uh, when God doesn't seem to be taking us in the direction that we want to go. So, verse 5, they speak against God. Um, I recently listened to the Lord of the Rings on audiobooks again, and Worm Tongue says this kind of thing, what things have you spoken against, you know, whatever, in the, in the dark places where nobody hears. So like when you're here on Sunday morning, you're not going to say, oh, I'm angry at God for being slow. You're going to, you know, but when you're by yourself, when you're in your own place where nobody sees the dark recesses of your heart, have you ever complained against God then? Right? And so that's, you know, they're, they're speaking out against God and against Moses again. And they, and Again, it's the same kind of things that they've said before. Um, and what does God do? Yes, fiery serpents. And fiery doesn't necessarily mean that they're on fire, but they, they have to be like poisonous. I mean, they're, they're killing. I mean, they bite you, you're, <laughs> you're dying, right? So, um, and so... Um, 
how many of the Israelites die? Many. Again, we come back on, if there can't be a judgment of God, then nothing makes sense. And if you sit back and say, God is wrong to ever judge, then your Christianity is just, mind to just throw it away. Because it, it, it is his prerogative to bring judgment. And, and how he chooses which people die and which ones live, I don't know. I don't know how that works. It doesn't say that only the certain portion of the people complained and were impatient, and then others were not. It doesn't, it doesn't just says they complain, and then God sends the fiery serpents, and people die, a lot of them. Should bring great fear to us. We've all committed enough sin that the fiery serpent could come to us. <laughs> right? being bitten or you know oh yeah when you see the person yes yeah and then when it says um i never caught this before but it may he made the bronze serpent serpent and if a serpent bit anyone he would look it didn't he didn't stop them from biting yes they still got bit yes that that That, and that and that's true like Think of the serpent as the judgment of God. It's biting you. It's, it's there. It's, it's, you know, but what is it that pr- keeps you from dying? Christ. I mean, obviously, you know the bronze serpent is the lifting up of Christ on the cross, right? I mean, this is, this is uh, typically uh, uh, how Christ interprets this passage to us. Um, and what do we say? Okay, you're feeling your sin. You acknowledge that you are, are guilty before God. What, what's the path? It's, and it's always been the same path. Repent of your sin and look to Christ. And that's exactly what they're doing here. And it's exactly what we need to do in our lives as well. Um, and it's interesting, they had complained to Moses, but now they look to Moses as the one to be able to help them because they have been trained by the previous experiences and by God's work that they can seek salvation through a mediator. Like God trained them to do that. They didn't figure that out themselves. He's like, I want you to learn that there's a mediator. There's an advocate for you who will stand up for you. And so he's teaching them in the Old Testament. You get to the book of Hebrews and Jesus is our mediator. Only he does it more perfectly than anyone in the Old Testament could ever do, right? So Moses prays for the people. Does, is it not true that Jesus prays for us continually from the throne in heaven? You know, we have that perfect mediator. Uh, why is it a snake? Why, why not have some other image? Why have the image of a snake on a pole? Satan in the garden, that's good, Yeah. always wondered why a snake on a pole it looks idolatrous to me what 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 was he teaching them but the snake's what's killing them and so they need to look at their sin as what's killing them i you're right on yep both of you i think are, are thinking correctly on this it's it's oh my goodness my sin is placed on that serpent there right that judgment on that serpent 
by the way, if you want the reference, it's John 3, 14 and 15. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. <clears throat> I'm going to read Do Good. It's kind of a long paragraph, um, but Do Good's good. Do Good, he's good. So, uh, Repentance is the reflex of the faith that brought you into the kingdom. For looking to Christ means at the same time turning away from all other means of salvation. You couldn't look intently at the bronze serpent and at something else as well. Think about that. God is focusing your attention. You have to look to the bronze serpent. You have to, not just a glance like this, but you are looking at the bronze serpent. You are focused on the bronze serpent. This is similar to the book of Hebrews, that you are to fix your eyes on Christ. You are to train yourself to look at him when you feel your sin, when you've seen the snake bite you, look to Christ. He says, You couldn't look intently at the bronze serpent at something else as well. What is more, repentance continues to be the reflex of faith throughout our earthly pilgrimage. We are constantly being bitten by sin, as it were, feeling the painful effects of failure in our ongoing struggle against our sinful nature. Just as we daily see those bitter fruits of sin, so too we are daily to take those sins and nail them afresh to the cross. Repentance is not simply a matter of recognizing and bemoaning what great sinners we are. As long as we are doing that, our eyes are still fixed on ourselves. Do you hear that? Oh, I'm terrible, I'm terrible, I'm terrible. Okay, you can have that, you can think that way, but you have got to get your eyes off of yourself and put them back up on Christ. Repentance is turning our heart to Christ in the midst of our recognizing our own sin fixing our eyes once again on the remedy for that sin offered to us in the gospel. Repentance is catching ourselves when we have grumbled over some challenge to our comfort or our sense of being in control of our lives or our acceptance by the in crowd and deliberately turning our face afresh to Jesus. Repentance is picking ourselves up after we have sought comfort in some earthly substitute for God, whether food or lustful thoughts or shopping or gossip or an angry outburst, And saying to ourselves, this is not my comfort. My only refuge is Jesus. The life of faith is a life of repentance that is constantly turning away from sin and turning toward Jesus. That's beautiful. That's what we need to do every day. Uh, But, as sinful Christians that we are, we can mess up a free lunch. <laughs> Turn over to 2 Kings 18, 1 to 6. Jim kind of alluded to this. Uh, Ann Hope, would you like to read 1 through 6? In the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, King of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abby, the daughter of 
Zechariah. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. And he broke into pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. Okay, so look at this. So years later, you know, what God used, the tool, the instrument, is not actually the element of salvation. It's not ever the bronze serpent. It was a tool that God used. And yet, what did the people do? They turned it, just like Jim said, into an idol. They turned it like that is the power. And this is what we do as well. We want to make God into a talisman, right? Something that will prevent us from harm, that will give us freedom to do what we want to do. And, and, and the uh, godly king here, Hosea, realizes that this is wrong, and he goes and he breaks it, gets rid of it. This is the one that Moses made. It had been there. I mean, who would, who would want to dis, like, destroy this thing? I mean, this is what God used. I mean, we should all remember this, right? And yet God can take, think about this in the church. I mean, does God use churches to redeem souls? But he can take a church up and down. He can, he can take people up and down. It's never the, the instrument. He uses the instrument. God is the one always looking to Christ. He is the one, the only hope that we have in our redemption. Uh, And just remember Calvin's statement, our hearts are idol factories. We can take one of the best things in the world and turn it into an idol. And that's what they're doing here. Okay, back in Numbers. Well, I actually think they're very similar. Right, but I, I think that the ashram poles are uh, the reason why Israel turns the, the bronze serpent into an idol is, is that's the normal way in which we want to approach God in worship. We have something that will almost like a, think of the, the staff of Gandalf, he's more powerful because he has the staff, right? I mean, he's, the staff actually enables him to have power. When we, get to, when we get to Balaam and his attempt to try to curse God, you're going to see how pagan religion is always trying to have some instrument or some means by which you can manipulate God's grace for your own sake. And I think that that's what the, the ashram poles and the... the um, all the high places and stuff in Israel, they were designed to be places where you could um, have a better access to the, to the height of God so that you could somehow uh, control God to bring blessing down upon yourself. So it's different than just going to God for mercy, confessing your sin, looking to the mediation for your redemption. It's not, it's a different type of, one is just, 
bowing yourself to God and begging for God's mercy. The other is, in some sense, using any aspect of worship to try to manipulate God. Now, I think we do that. I think we often, oh, I went to church, I did these things, therefore God's going to bless me. So I think we still have that mindset. And, and the Old Testament, I think, is helping us to see what is true worship as opposed to what is the pagan worship. So it doesn't, it, it doesn't explain everything, Howard, but, but it, it, is, it all has to do with the, the, uh, the idea of control and manipulation, I think, is the, at the heart of it. Yes. Right. Yep. Don't underestimate the works element in all of this. Yep. Okay. Uh, verses 10 through 20. Um, Emmy, would you read for us? No. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I just was looking at the microphone. and Okay, so Jim, would you read for us 10 through 20? And the people of Israel set out and camped in Oboth. And they set out from Oboth and camped at Eabirim in the wilderness that's opposite Moab toward the sunrise. From there they set out and camped in the valley of Zered. From there they set out and camped on the other side of the Arnon, which is in the wilderness that extends from the border of the Amorites. For the Arnon is the border of Moab, between Moab and the Amorites. Therefore it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord, Waheb in Supah and the valleys of the Arnon and the slope of the valleys that extends to the seat of Ar, the leans to the border of Moab. And from there they continued to bear... That is the well of which the Lord said to Moses, Gather the people together so that I may give them water. Then Israel sang this song, Spring up, O well, sing to it, the well that the princes made, that the nobles of the people dug, with the scepter and with their staffs. And from the wilderness they went on to Matanaha, and from Matana to Nahaliel, and from <laughs> Nahaliel to Bamoth, and from Bamoth to the valley lying in the region of Moab, by the top of Pisgah that looks down on the desert. All right, Jim, good job. Thank you. <laughs> That's why Emmy said no. <laughs> well, the nice thing is we don't even know what the right vowels are in Hebrew, so the pronunciation of these names is very loose. So I would always tell the kids, look, just read it fast and everybody will think you did it fine. Um, okay. They, if you, um, let's see here. Here you go. This is a good map. If you see, this is the, obviously the promised land, Dead Sea, Sea of Galilee. Right here is the Arnon River. And this river is, is the, um, you got Edom down here, but you also have Moab, which they also are supposed to bypass. And, and they, um, this is like the boundary. This is, this is our um, Mexican border right here. They, what's, the, uh, what's the river on the Mexican border? Rio Grande, yeah. This is the Rio Grande right here. So, 
So these, there's going to be two more kingdoms up here, Bashan and Ammon, uh, but this is the border. So they're, they're coming around to that. I, I, I went online and found a couple uh, pictures. I don't know if you guys care about these, but, but like at some places in the, in the, uh, on the river, it is like a sheer drop cliff. So, you know, it's like you're not going to go across that area very well. But then in other places, it's, it's like, a, you know, you have, it's more rolling and stuff. And so um, there, obviously, you can cross in some places, other places you can't. And they're making this journey across this, this river at this time. So, uh, and again, this is, this is just for us to think, okay, they're making the journey. They're setting out. They're moving into the region that is going to get them to where they can come into the promised land right in this region right here. Um, so, um, let's see here. Uh, it, it mentions in verse 14 the book of the wars of the Lord. Any idea what that is? It's a book. <laughs> well, this would, this would be way before Chronicles. So if this was a reference to Chronicles, then it would have been, uh, you would make the case that Numbers was uh, only written way down the road. And, and yeah, so um, um, we don't really know what this book is, um, but it's probably a, uh, a, a more detailed account of Israel's uh, defeating of these countries here, um, and so more in a, like a poetic uh, fashion. Um, so I, I don't know exactly what this is. There you go, the uninspired book of victory psalms. That's you know, basically the same conclusion I have, that they, it just didn't make it into scripture per se, but they do mention it, that this other book exists. And, um, and I think that the purpose of mentioning it here is to again get you thinking that things are looking up. There are victories, not defeats, right? That's going on. Uh, you know, you sing the song, from victory unto victory, you know, you're charging forward. And so, you know, they're no different than us. We need to have some hope that we're in this fight and we're not defeat after defeat. And it feels like that sometimes. And so they've got this poetic book of victories that they had and, and there's making reference to that here. Um, they come to Bayer. Where's Bayer? I don't see it on this map, so that doesn't help us there. But where do you guys, you guys probably have notes in your book, in your Bibles. Um, what is Bear? It means well, that's very good, yep. Beer, it's just beer, right? <laughs> it's, a, it's a well, a full of beer. No. Um. <laughs> Um, it, anybody? I'm sure you guys got, you guys have these like super Bibles that have all these notes and stuff in them, right? Nobody's going to tell me what, doesn't talk about beer, huh? Okay. All right, give him the, so you can read that. Go ahead. 
there's there's not that much. It says beer, bear, a place in the desert, also one in Palestine. <clears throat> Excuse me, an oasis rest in the desert during Exodus, a city west of Hebron. Okay, that's. There is plenty of water. That's the main thing you need to know. Now, if you want to, this is helpful because I showed you some of those other, you probably couldn't see it too well, but those other pictures had like some trees and some green and stuff. This is what it mostly looks like, which is like a desert all around, right? So if you're, you're at this place of Be'er, there's plenty of water, things are good right there as you're coming into the land. They're actually singing songs, right? Spring up, oh well. We're excited that there's water here. Things are good. This is a, you know, you want to talk about it's a high point in your life. You're feeling good in your Christianity. <laughs> Things have been blessed, right? They're happy. Um, but this is setting up um, difficult times. Um, and it's setting up, um, it's in contrast to um, Moses striking the rock. Um, uh, I think, what would that be? I think it's forward in, uh, oh, I'm not seeing that, might be even past. Did we already do Moses striking the rock? Yeah, so it's in contrast, yeah, at the waters of Meribah in chapter 20. So in chapter 20, Moses is striking the rock, and, and there's not water, but here they're seeing plenty of water, and they're very excited about this. Again, it's a positive account. So God is treating his people with kindness, and things are looking good. So positive, positive, positive. Right, and this is the mountain where Moses goes up and sits and he can look at the whole promised land. So all of this is just a positive statement to us. Um, one of the, you guys are familiar with foreshadowing, not foreshadowing, uh, foreshortening. Have you ever heard of that term? So... Ed, you're a, you're a hiker, so you pay attention to this. So here's, here's the trailhead, and here's Ed hiking up the trail, okay? And, and he, when he's way back here, he's over here, and he's thinking about his trailhead, he's like, I want to get to this peak. You guys don't know, Ed's... Ed's Every peak in North Carolina that's over 6,000 feet, he's climbed. So pretty, he's done them all. So, but and you're, you, you're way back here, you can see that peak right there. But when you get down here and you're actually walking, you go up this right here, and what you're seeing is this peak. And you think that this peak is this peak. Because you, when you're down here, you can't, your eyesight's looking like this. And so you can't even see that. So then you get, you come up here and you stand on this peak. Now, what do you see? You say, oh, wait a minute. The mountain range does this before it gets back up to there. 
So when you thought that you were here, this is your peak. No, it's not. You've got a big journey left to get up to your peak, right? That's called foreshortening. A lot of times you think first coming of Jesus Christ, second coming of Jesus Christ. And there's a lot of mess in between, right? A lot of times the prophecies in the Old Testament kind of squeeze them together. And it sounds like Jesus comes, everything's great, fixed. Well, then we, don't, we know that there's really a distance between those. Well, here we go. We're getting glimpses of victory. Moses is allowed to stand up on Mount Pisgah and look at the promised land and say, yes, we've arrived. And yet we know that there's a lot of struggle and fighting that still is existing uh, in their situation. So, Okay, so quickly, uh, 21 to 24. Lori, would you read for us, please? Then Israel sent messengers to Sion, king of the Amorites, saying, Let me pass through your land. We will not turn aside into the field or vineyard. We will not drink the water of a well. We will go by the king's highway until we have passed through your territory. But Sion, Sihon <laughs> would not allow Israel to pass through his territory. He gathered all his people together and went out against Israel to the wilderness and came to Jahaz and fought against Israel. And Israel defeated him with the edge of the sword and took possession of his land from the Arnon to the Jabbok as far as to the Amorites, for the border of the Amorites was strong. Okay, there's a, there's a river here. This is the Jabbok. This is the Arnon. So this is his kingdom, it's the Amorite kingdom, it's King Sihon, Sihon. When I was doing this with the youth, I would make them every week say, Sihon, you know, and then we get to Og a little bit later, I'd make them say, Og and Sihon, just so it would like get into their minds of these kings, right? So um, Og is going to be up here, Sihon is right here, he's king of the, the uh, Amorites, sometimes I think he's called king of Heshbon. Uh, because of his capital city. Um, so that's, that's them. Um, what are your observations as we see Israel having to come up against Sihon here? So Israel asked permission to fight, right? They asked permission to just travel through, right? Okay. Isn't that interesting, right? <laughs> water is always the big deal, right? Uh, so we're not going to drink any water. How are you going to live? Well, we got a bunch from that spring back there, so we're, we're in good shape uh, if you let us pass quickly. What else? Good observations. Right, yeah, we've got our own support. We're just, we just want to pass through here. Yeah. Like I say, if, if, would we believe it if, if a bunch of people were coming across the, the border saying, we're just going to Canada. Yeah. <laughs> just heading to Canada. <laughs> well, this is, this is probably at least 2 million. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they're walking. They're not on a highway. So uh, not on a, like a, 
driving highway. Um, okay, so, but what does Sihon do? They mass against the Israelites. He should have taken the deal, is right. Uh, because rather than going around uh, Edom and Moab, like God says, don't fight them, here there's no such mercy. And so they go out, and Israel defeats him with the edge of the sword, and they take possession of his land. Um, I again think that God, in his sovereign hand, has ordained this land to be taken. Now, this is not the promised land. The promised land goes up this way, comes down. This is the promised land. This area is not the promised land. And yet, God uh, ordains that the Israelites wipe out this people. Now, I think part of this is training. Part of it is also going to be that God is going to allow this land to be inhabited as a portion of Israel's inheritance. And I won't answer this right now, but it's a question you have is how can a piece of land outside of the promised land actually be a portion of God's promised inheritance? <laughs> okay, yeah, well, yeah, I'll... I'll like I said, this is going to come up at the end of Numbers. Later on, they're going to have people talking about inheritance. There's going to be certain tribes that are going to beg Moses to let them inherit this land. And, and God's going to allow them to do it. But we're not there yet, but I'm just letting you know that God has a purpose for not taking out these people, but he wants to take out these people, and he's, he's got a plan for this. Um, and so that's, that's where we are. And Israel goes out, and they... They uh, take possession of the, the land, um, and then there is a pause that takes place. Yeah, okay, so I just want to, I just want to, um, this is helpful. I, these kind of things have taken years for me to kind of ruminate on them, and I'm like pushing them down your throat quickly, okay? That's why I didn't want to answer this too much right now. But remember, God promised to Abraham a land. And in Abraham's life, this land was not the promised land. This land was the promised land. And to be in the promised land is to be in the blessing. To be out of the promised land is not in God's promised blessing. That's the way it's always been up until this point. God is going to take out these people, and then in a few chapters, he's going to allow some of his people. They're not like lesser tribes. They're, you know, he's going to say, you can't actually, this, it's like he expands the, the nature of the promised land to include this land as well. And that's going to be an important issue to us. Now, I'm, I'm struggling to not tell you what I think, so I'm going to leave it at that for right now. But that's the issue that you're thinking of. How can someone outside of the promised land be experiencing the blessing of being in the promised land? That's the issue, okay? 
that's going on. And I think God is, again, teaching important lessons in this as well. Okay. We're out of time. Um, let's see here. Yeah, we'll, we'll stop. Because we still have to go through Og. There's a pause that takes on. And they are going to sing. This is, there's a big, this, this guy's even stronger than this guy. So they are going to pause. And they are going to sing. And I think that's just a good place to end for us. You're in the middle of your journey to victory. But on the Lord's Day, you take a little bit of rest. And you pause and you sing songs to God and you praise him because he has enabled you to get as far as you have so far. And you should be thankful for that. And that's where they are at this point. So let me close this in prayer. Father, thank you for your kindness and graciousness to us. Thank you for the bronze serpent. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for um, uh, the grace to fight against sin. We're really not... Uh, beating up and killing physical people now, but we are very much in a spiritual warfare against the evil of our sin. And, uh, and I pray, Father, that you would give us determination, you would give us hope, you would help us to see small victories, and we would keep pressing on because we know that you are faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.